Today on Ag News Daily. After seeing 10 15 images, uh, the baby learns whenever he sees something like car, he'll call it a car. Or, or when he sees something like a truck, he'll call it a truck. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Tech Tuesday here on the Ag News Daily podcast. Delaney Howell joined by my co host, Mike Pearson. Mike, what do you know today? Good afternoon, Delaney Howell. You know, I do know that the National Association of Farm Broadcasters are getting ready for their annual convocation in Kansas City. I know that you are headed that direction, are you not? I am headed that direction tomorrow. Fantastic. Well, because of that, I was uh, taping This Week in Agribusiness earlier today with Mr. Max Armstrong. We were talking propane shortages for a little while in the podcast, or excuse me, in the broadcast. This is the podcast. And, you know, it's incredible the number of growers who have been impacted not only by LP shortages, but lately by natural gas shutoffs. Apparently, growers, particularly in the northern tier of Iowa, southern tier of Minnesota, have seen their elevators and, of course, some of the farmer customers get shut off from natural gas. So not only are we having LP delivery shortages, we're having natural gas delivery shortages. So corn that has been sitting in the field longer than most growers would like already is going to have to sit in the field a little while longer until they get these uh, delivery issues sorted out. Well, not only that, but... I mean, the snow obviously makes them have their corn sit in the field a while longer. We've got these issues now. Hopefully people don't have any soybeans left in the field. That's a tall order to fill if you got to get some soybeans out in this weather. Well, I believe there probably is still some beans left in the field. We'll know for sure at 3 o'clock this afternoon when the USDA releases their delayed crop progress report. We'll get an update on harvest progress. Of course, uh, as listeners are aware, yesterday was Veterans Day, so we did not have the the usual Monday reportage. It will come out later today. But... um, Yeah, I mean, I think it's everything is kind of stuck in the field. And I was talking to a few growers this morning. This extreme cold has caused folks to have some uh, machinery difficulties as well. So it's like we just can't catch a break. No, it unfortunately sounds like it. Mike, I was also talking to a grower this morning, actually a dairy producer. I should say our good friend Gary Rasmussen sent me this news this morning that I think could impact a lot of folks, especially if you're up in that Uper area of Michigan or you are a dairy producer up in that area. And that is Dean Foods. Mike, are you familiar with that brand? Dean Foods, they do milk, ice cream, cheese, a lot of different trim. They make various dips, a lot of... uh... Yes, and so, yeah, go ahead with your story. Well, no, I'm going to... They are... uh, They voluntarily initiated their Chapter 12 reorganization and bankruptcy. And so that entails about 65 different plants across 29 states across the country. They employ 15,000 people. And so the way that I understand their uh, bankruptcy here is now they have received a commitment of approximately $850 million in debtor and processing finance from lenders, including Rabobank. And so folks that are bringing milk into those locations will still get paid from the way that I understand it, but they have initiated basically a buyout or they're going to sell the company since they are bankrupt. And it sounds like the likely buyer is going to be Dairy Farmers of America, which is the nation's largest dairy cooperative. Well, that will be interesting. You know, here's my thought. Uh, 
had a conversation about this with Max earlier today while we were talking about uh, changes happening in the industry and Dean Foods came up. I had Dean's French onion dip with some of my uh, potato chips the other day, and I'll be honest, I was disappointed. I've grown up, as a lot of our Iowa listeners are familiar, with Anderson Erickson, the the dairy company in central Iowa, and AE's dip is fantastic. They're not paying us, but AE, if you're listening, we would love to take your money or perhaps a trade-out in dips. The Dean French onion dip was not very good, so I'm not terribly surprised they're filing for bankruptcy. I did like their uh, True Moo milk, though. Chocolate milk. That was always my favorite. Right. I didn't, I didn't realize that was them until mm-hmm. you just said so, Delaney. Yeah. So, it's got a few dairy farmers, I think, uh, a little nervous, but it sounds like everything should oh, be lined absolutely. up. Well, yeah, the good news is financing is in place, so hopefully those dairy farmers who supply deans will continue to see their uh, their supply taken with no additional disruptions, which is the important takeaway here for a lot of our listeners who are dairy producers. Absolutely. Well, speaking of hopes being dashed, the success of Dean Foods has been dashed as also Donald Trump earlier today mentioned that the prospect of signing an initial trade deal with China was soon, but offered no deals on negotiations. He gave a campaign-style speech touting his, uh, you know, the economic record of uh, his administration. He spoke earlier today to the Economic Club of New York. Um, earlier on in the day, there was a lot of anticipation for these remarks, but since he didn't come out with any really groundbreaking policy announcements, nothing really changed in the markets and um, certainly said there was uh, there was no timeline on when we could uh, get close to actually signing phase one of a deal. Um, he said they were close, but he came back to saying at the end of the day, quote, they're dying to make a deal. We're the ones that are deciding whether or not we want to make a deal. We're close. A significant phase one deal with China could happen, could happen soon, but we will only accept a deal if it's good for the United States and our workers and our great companies, end quote. That was how we left it. So we still don't know exactly where things sit with this phase one deal, which remember, about a month ago, we were anticipating to be signed in three days, which doesn't sound like it's going to happen. Oh, yeah, that's right. That would have been this week. It would have been this week. And mm. uh, now it is being pushed off into the future, as uh, as so many things often are when it comes to dealing with Washington, D.C. Yeah, I saw um, Top Third, if you don't follow them on Twitter, they do post some funny stuff. They posted a tweet, I believe it was earlier today or last night, that was like, well, we're going to see a phase one at some point. And maybe it's going to be later. You know, it was just it was just uh, kind of making fun of how it's been like up and down for getting a trade deal and then not getting a trade deal. Yeah, up and down and back and forth and side to side and every way but forward. It seems like exactly, exactly. Well, well what it, other news do you have for us, Delaney? Well, I saw today coming across the news that a group of Senate Democrats have written a letter to Secretary Perdue asking him to correct the inequities that they've seen in this design of the market facilitation payment plan. After Perdue announced another last week plan to send out a second round of payments here and, and also hinted at another round in early 2020, a group of senators said that the South is receiving quite a bit more 
in those MFP payments than the producers up in the north and said that farmers in Georgia have already received more than $50 per acre from the first round of 2019 payments, while farmers in 34 other states received $25 or less. Farmers in 14 states received $10 or less. It is a little fishy that Secretary Purdue's home state of Georgia is one of the ones that's receiving the most money, but I I don't know. Yeah, whether or not there's any impropriety in play, it certainly doesn't look the best. No, exactly. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. We were talking this morning on This Week in Agribusiness about how the, at a farm foundation forum, roughly 30 to 40 percent of farmers' income this year is expected to be made up of government payments, including MFP. And when we don't know the science behind the MFP payments, it's tough for growers to really get excited about them. So there's just more nervousness overall about why and how these payments are calculated when they comprise such a large share of growers' income. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of growers' income, Mike, we saw the Agricultural Bankers Conference held in Dallas. Uh, I believe it was either starting this week or end of last week. But they did a survey at the conference showing what lenders are seeing from the agricultural economy. And uh, it sounds like the survey suggests that the farm economy is showing little sign of improvement, though many growers are holding on at least. So that's some good signs there. Lenders said that about 57% of their farm borrowers are profitable this year. And about 82.5% of lenders said that profits are falling and it's pretty consistent across the country. But... About 56% of those lenders surveyed said they do expect their growers to remain profitable throughout 2020. And as you said there, I think it's because of these market facilitation program payments that so many farmers are able to say, okay, well, I'm going to be profitable this year, but only because of that next payment. Yeah, exactly. I was talking to my good friend Doug Johnson from Moody's Analytics. He's uh, with the Lending Cloud program they've got, and uh, he's down there at the ABA annual convention. And, yeah, that's the, the general consensus is that, yeah, growers are able to bail themselves out this year. Some of them have been able to bushel their way out of it, as they have done in years past with production. But this year, of course, that's more challenging than most, and government payments have really been the saving grace. So a lot of these lenders are pushing on their congresspeople and senators to keep the payments coming and to, you know, make sure we can figure out that they're fair. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think this comes as no surprise, but they said really another preventing condition of the farm economy from getting worse is just so many people have off-farm income and off-farm jobs. Yes. And of course, that plays a huge role in not just cash flow, but also insurance. Being able to have insurance come from an off-farm source rather than writing those massive insurance premium checks is a huge piece of things. Delaney, one of the topics on insurance this year that has been hot, hot, hot is the Democratic campaign trail. All of the Democratic campaigners are offering different versions of how to insure America. And a guy who was uh, kind of uh, in, well, gosh, fourth or fifth place not too long ago has pulled to the top of the pack, at least in Iowa. Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, has, uh, was announced earlier today, Monmouth University released a poll saying that for the first time, 
he is expected to be the leader in Iowa amongst likely Democratic caucus growers. He now has about 20 percent of likely caucus growers. Uh, Joe Biden dropped seven points. He's in second place with 19 percent. Elizabeth Warren dropped two points to 18 percent. And Bernie Sanders is up five points. So he's at 13 percent. So that rounds out the top four in the nation's first caucus of the state of Iowa, which is going to happen in January, which is hard to believe. It's just around the corner. I've got to, so I'm, I mean, I'm not, a, I wouldn't consider myself a super political person, but out of all the candidates I heard speak at the Iowa State Fair this year, Pete Buttigieg was probably one of my favorites just because he was very even keel. He didn't really swing really far one way or the other is how I felt. And some of the other candidates I would argue swing very far to the left. And I'm not a big fan of that. Well, and that's one of the leading complaints against Pete Buttigieg is that he is too centrist. And mm. uh, the Democratic Party is somewhat divided. Iowa Democratic caucus goers tend to be more centrist. They tend to be a little more pragmatic than those on the coast, like you'd see in New York or in California. And so they are some, those on the coasts are somewhat frustrated that he is now leading the pack in Iowa since he has kind of taken some swipes at some of the progressive policies, namely Medicare for all, um, in his uh, in his campaign. Huh. Well, that is. I mean, that makes sense. Iowa's still a pretty conservative state, even though there's large pockets of Democrats as well. Right. The Democrats do tend to be, yeah, I don't want to say more conservative, but a little more pragmatic, perhaps, yes. than uh, than some of the the coastal Democrats. Well, that is interesting. Yeah, it's crazy to think that we're getting into that season already. Look, I'm glad for the first time. I love Iowa. It is a huge part of my upbringing. It will always remain a key place in my heart. But I love the fact that I live in Illinois and I can turn on the TV and not be inundated with paid promotional presidential yeah. campaign advertisements. Yeah, it does I love that fact. I know. I, oh, my yeah. gosh, it gets so old. Well, let's see. Well, what other news do you have for us, Yeah, the only other thing I wanted to update our listeners on is what's going on right now between the U.S. and Brazil as it relates to the non, or excuse me, the tariff rate quota for wheat imports. Brazil is finally following through on that 24-year-old promise to implement a 750,000 metric ton tariff rate quota for wheat imports, which is expected to benefit mainly U.S. and Canadian exporters and Brazilian President Bolsonaro has also pledged to set up long dormant quotas. I'm not exactly sure what that is, um, but it sounds like government sources have said that objections from Argentina delayed the process uh, because he made that promise back in March and we're already in November. So Argentina also wanted a piece of the pie is what it sounds like here. So it sounds like they've worked some stuff out on their end, but we should be able to get some wheat sent into Brazil. Well, that would be great news for our American wheat growers. We need to keep those exports strong in order to keep prices moving to the upside. And as we'll talk about in just a little bit, wheat was the main mover in the markets today. But before we jump into our market conversation, I just had one other piece of news. Delaney, it's interesting. You highlighted uh, Brazil in your last story. Brazil also is poised to increase for the second time in less than a year the minimum amount of biodiesel to be blended into diesel fuel. Basically, 
They say that they're going to increase the minimum amount of biodiesel required one percentage point a year through 2023, and uh, this is going to push their minimum biodiesel blend up to 12% of diesel composition, and finally it's going to reach a 15% blend by 2023, and they're discussing the path to higher blends after that. Basically, Brazil, despite all of the demand from China that they've seen all these past uh, all these past months, is looking for ways to increase demand for soybeans produced locally. Um, they say that higher biodiesel blending will reduce imports of oil-based diesel fuel. It will also boost local demands for soybeans. And they think that B15 is one of the things that they are certain of, and they are currently testing higher blends, according to Fabio Vinhado, who leads the uh, laboratory of Brazil's oil and fuel regulator, ANP. They're currently testing 20 and 30% blends of biodiesel in diesel fuel. So Brazil is really taking the lead, as they have done with uh, sugar-based ethanol, they're taking the lead with soy-based biodiesel, and hopefully, I think a lot of American soybean producers are hoping maybe we can follow in their footsteps and push that biodiesel blend even higher here in this country. Oh, absolutely. Well, we'll make sure and hit the biodiesel, national biodiesel this week at NAFE, and we can ask them about that. As well you should, Delaney Howell. Oh, Yes. Well, that's all the news I have for the day. Do you have any other stories we need to make sure we cover? I think I'm good as well. All right. Well, let's jump into the market. So, folks, we've got green on the screen in the grains today, driven largely by movement in the wheat market, as I mentioned earlier. Corn was pulled along beside it with the December contract up four and a half cents at 377 and three quarters. The March contract also up four and a half to finish at 386 and a half. Soybeans were mixed on the day. The November contract was up three quarters of a penny at 905 and three quarters. January, the most heavily traded, was unchanged on the day at 917 even. In wheat, December contract up 11 and a quarter cents at 517 even. The March also up 11 and a quarter, closed the day at 521 and three quarters. Jumping over to livestock, we saw a little weakness in live cattle. The December contract was down 12 and a half cents at 119.75. February down a dime, closed the day at 125.57.50. And mixed trade in feeder cattle, the November contract was up 22 and a half cents at 147.80, with the January unchanged on the day at 147.12.50. Looking over at lean hogs, we did catch a bid today. The December contract was up a dollar 42.50 at one. Excuse me, at 64.72.50. The February up a dollar eighty-two and a half to close the day at seventy-five fifty-five, and weakness today in the dairy sector. The November contract fell ten cents to twenty dollars oh six. December down a whopping forty-eight cents on the day. Finished the day at eighteen seventy-one. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our hashtag Tech Tuesday conversation with Iowa State's agronomist Artie Singh. Well, for today's Tech Tuesday interview, we are talking about some interesting research being developed right now at Iowa State University with Dr. Artie Singh, who is an adjunct assistant professor in their agronomy department. Artie, first of all, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Delany. So tell us a little bit about your background before we get into what you're specifically doing there at Iowa State. Tell us about your background and how you came to Iowa State University interested in the agronomy field. So um, 
my background is uh, I'm a native uh, from India. And in 2007, I moved to Canada to do a postdoctoral fellowship. And in 2013, I moved to Iowa uh, because uh, I wanted to work uh, in, in agriculture and uh, my job in Canada was ending. So I applied at one place and um, Iowa State was the first one where I got a job. And so this is where I moved. Well, that is fascinating. So you've been here since then, and you recently were in the news as the recipient of a grant to help utilize machine learning to identify stress in soybean fields specifically. Can you tell us a little bit about what the, uh, the application for that grant was like and what got you interested in machine learning? So uh, machine learning is um, a technology where um, you can train computers to do um, exactly uh, what humans do. So this uh, grant is about uh, training uh, UAVs or drones uh, to, to identify uh, various soybean diseases in farmers' fields. So basically the idea is uh, that uh, uh, if a, a farmer is flying a drone in his field, uh, so he needs to, the, the machine or the UAV needs to be trained uh, to identify a stress. So basically what we are doing is behind the curtain, we are developing these algorithms uh, to train compute, uh, computers uh, to identify these diseases. And then we are hooking up these algorithms on UAV to detect the diseases in real time. Artie, when you look at the diseases that you are developing for machine learning, what specifically are diseases are you focusing on? Are you focusing on any sort of uh, weeds or pests as well? So uh, this is uh, like a, a starting work. Uh, so uh, we um, right now are focusing on um, diseases. When I call diseases, these are soybean diseases caused by bacteria, fungi, viruses. And also in, in, in our recent uh, work, um, which got published in Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, we have also focused on herbicide injury. So basically the idea is how to detect or differentiate among uh, these diseases in field when a farmer is, is seeing um, these uh, stresses in field. And so let's talk about how you train these machines to do this. I mean, I understand that, you know, a human, we can go ahead and just look out at a field and see things. A camera can't understand necessarily the same way our brains can. How does machine learning facilitate the ability to, to uh, identify these sorts of diseases? Oh, that's a very uh, good question. So it is, um, we are training machines, uh, same like we, we have to train. Uh, I, I give this example everywhere when I'm giving talks. So when you have to train a year-old baby uh, to identify cars uh, versus trucks, so you, what you usually do is you, you, you can sit with a baby as, as, as soon as a car passes, you can tell the baby it's a car. Or when it, uh, you see a truck, you call it truck. After seeing 10, 15 images, uh, the baby learns whenever he sees something like car, he'll call it a car. Or, or when he sees something like a truck, he'll call it a truck. So same thing we are doing uh, with computers or algorithms. We are um, taking lots and lots of pictures of various soybean diseases in field, and we are uh, labeling them like uh, this is a, a fung fungal disease or sudden death syndrome in, in soybean. And so we have providing images with label, which, which stands for the disease name. And once computer learns to map diseases with the, with the name or a label, 
it learns um, to identify these diseases um, once the model is trained to identify new diseases um, and which falls in the, the same category. So uh, this is how we are training um, computer algorithms to identify various diseases. And so, Artie, where are you at in your research process? Obviously, you've got a grant secured. Are you at a point yet where you feel confident to roll this out for commercial use? Or are you still just testing it to work out all the kinks? So uh, this uh, work is an um, extension of the work uh, which I carried out a few years ago um, on iron deficiency chlorosis. So where uh, we came up with the application to identify using smartphone, uh, these um, iron deficiency chlorosis in field. So basically the idea was to take an uh, image of iron deficient uh, plant. And um, once uh, we trained the model in a real time through the smartphone, we were able to identify iron deficiency chlorosis. So right now, at this stage, um, we are uh, in process of collecting data using UAV. And we have already trained a model um, on uh, destructive samples, but not a non-destructive. So when we are flying UAV, we will be taking these images in a non-destructive manner. So with this project um, to USB and EPA, we, what we are trying to do is collect as many as images of various stresses um, in farmer's field or in research plot. And then we will be training model to identify these diseases. And once the model is showing high accuracy, we are going to uh, plug in into um, our um, uh, onboard on UAV to, to, so that we can uh, detect these stresses in a real time. So, Dr. Singh, I want to go back to kind of when you started this project. What made you choose soybeans over corn, for example, or wheat? What was the advantage of starting with soybeans? Oh, that's, again, a very good question. So, uh, when um, I, I started thinking about machine learning, the first thing in, in my mind was to start with an easy problem or an easy, um, and I will say that soybean is not easy, but when I say easy, that means when I'm uh, rating diseases on soybean, I usually look for the canopy on the top of the canopy. Uh, the same uh, idea is uh, when I'll be rating uh, corn disease, I'll be looking at the corn diseases, different leaves. But the thing is, uh, the corn uh, is very tall as it, it grows. So I can't see it from the top, uh, like how the, the top leaves are. So, uh, and when I was thinking to expand this work from smartphone to, to UAV, the idea was um, uh, from, the, from flying a UAV, can I detect those stresses on the canopy? And when I compare corn versus soybean, um, the, the natural choice goes to soybean because I was already working uh, on the soybean earlier, and also uh, I thought that it will make sense for the UAV uh, images uh, to, uh, to get the canopy images of soybean compared to corn. But in long run, um, uh, I'm hoping uh, once I can prove uh, these algorithms are working uh, at a high accuracy in soybean, we can transfer the same process to uh, corn because there's a very uh, unique um, uh, technique called transfer learning where the already trained model on one crop can be transferred to another crop species. Uh, so besides transferring that to another crop like corn or wheat, what other, I guess, big bright spots do you see for using machine learning in the agronomy field? So other uh, bright spot um, uh, which we are also targeting is uh, not only uh, these diseases, 
how to identify uh, weeds uh, um, in, in, in soybean or corn fields, how to train algorithms to identify uh, different weeds. And also um, another uh, bigger area of um, uh, interest is in uh, herbicide injuries. And uh, these days uh, we have, uh, we are applying this mixture of herbicides so that the plants are not resistant again against particular herbicide. We are mixing these herbicides. So, so our area of interest is also understanding uh, various uh, herbicide injury and how to differentiate uh, with bio biotic and abiotic stresses. Fascinating work. It is going to be interesting to watch this area of technology in particular advance over the coming years. Dr. Artie Singh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. If our listeners want to read more about your research, can you tell us where they can go to do so? So uh, they can go to uh, the Google Scholar uh, profile and they can find my name and uh, they'll find all the recent publications in this area um, which we are targeting. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again so much for taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to watching what you do in the future. Thank you so much, guys. Well, a huge thank you to Dr. Singh for taking the time to talk us through machine learning and how that can change the production of soybeans going forward. Delaney, there is some really cool stuff underway in the agricultural industry. Oh, Mike, there's always some really cool stuff underway in the ag industry. There sure is. And in fact, listeners, if you're not already following Mr. Chad Colby, who is at the Chad Colby on Twitter, you should be. He is over across the seas at Agritechnica and has been reporting on some of the crazy technological advances that are being reported at that farm show. You should definitely be following following him in addition to following us you should find us on social media at ag news daily on twitter facebook and instagram we've got all sorts of crazy cool content that you don't want to miss as well as all of our previous episodes on our website just visit agnewsdaily.com it'll take you to our home there at the global ag network and you can get caught up on any past episode with that delaney howell should we let our listeners go let's let them go 